Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. We have three fantastic in-depth interviews for you this week. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. The European Society of Medical Oncology ended just a few days ago, and later in this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Javier Cortez in Barcelona, Spain, about his presidential symposium, late-breaking presentation, held at that meeting, in which he revealed the data from the much-anticipated Phase 3 Destiny Breast 03 trial for patients with advanced breast cancer. The results of the antibody drug conjugate trastuzumab Toxicam compared head-to-head with the current standard called TDM1 were practice-changing with spectacular efficacy and excellent safety outcomes. I'm not even sure I've ever seen a p-value with actually 22 zeros in it. Physicians Weekly offers in-depth interviews with the most highly respected experts in the medical community. Also in this episode, our correspondent Dylan Prentner speaks with pediatrician Umbarine Nehal, who is Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Affairs for Community Healthcare Network in New York City. In addition, Dr. Nehal led a nationwide campaign as Chair of the Task Force of American Muslims for Affordable Healthcare that was conducted in conjunction with the White House, where she leveraged community resources to educate and enroll American Muslims in new health coverage options. In recognition of her work, Dr. Nehal was honored by an invitation from President Barack Obama to the White House. Dr. Nehal speaks with us today about how to find the balance of hope and humanism in what she says is a system of perverse incentives. But first, Physicians Weekly speaks with dermatologist Dr. Sophie Weatherhead from Newcastle, the United Kingdom, about her group's recently published research concerning phototherapy and psoriasis. Enjoy listening. Dr. Sophie C. Weatherhead is a consultant dermatologist at Newcastle's Royal Victoria Infirmary, and her particular interests are in phototherapy, psoriasis, and cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. She recently had a paper published in the Journal of European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology titled, The Use of Psoriasis Biomarkers Including Trajectory of Clinical Response to Predict Clearance and Remission Duration to UVB Phototherapy. Dr. Weatherhead, what makes this topic an important one to study? What needs existed for your research? Well, psoriasis is a global problem. It affects about 2% of the world's population. Um, And there are many different treatments available. uh, And sometimes that tells you that not everything works. Um, So it's really important to work out um, what is gonna work for individual patients. And this will both save money for um, the actual treatment costs, but also in terms of the patient's transport and all the rest of it but also time. Um, And that's very important, both when you've got limited resources, um, but also for the patient who really does want to be clear as quickly as they can, because psoriasis can be really quite traumatic and sometimes disabling for patients, as well as the itch and other things that go alongside it. So there really aren't good biomarkers for psoriasis at the minute. And we wanted to try and help find some biomarkers that would be helpful for phototherapy. 
So where there isn't good biomarkers, you can also use trajectory of clinical response. So that's seeing how a patient does within the first few weeks of treatment and using that to predict the place that they will be, how effective it will be several months down the line. Can you briefly explain what you and your colleagues set out to determine with this study and how you went about doing so? Sure. So we wanted to find a way of optimising resources um, and getting patients clear from their psoriasis as quickly as possible. We use phototherapy um, and phototherapy is something that we do a lot of. We're a tertiary referral centre in the UK. We see about 100 to 150 patients a day just routinely for phototherapy treatment. For psoriasis, our patients come three times a week. Um, and we give them slightly increasing doses of UVB over an eight to 10 week course um, and clear patients that way. Um, so in this study, we recruited 100 patients prospectively, um, half male, half female. Um, we included all adults over the age of 18 and our median age was 45 years old. We measure patient severity using a score called PARSI score. It stands for Psoriasis Area Severity Index and it gives us an idea of how badly affected our patients are. So it's an objective measure, and we had a median score of eight, which means that our patients were moderately affected by psoriasis. So in this study, the idea was to measure patients' PARSI before they start and at weekly intervals during the treatment, and then to follow them up for 18 months after the treatment to see how effective it's been. What findings from your study are important to stress to our physician readers? particularly dermatologists. So um, we looked at a whole range of demographics. Um, we looked at patient sex, their age, their smoking, um, whether or not they drank alcohol and how much. We looked at how, how overweight they are or underweight. Um, we looked at the age of onset, skin type, their inflammatory markers, vitamin D. We looked at a whole load of different demographics. And what we found was that there was a relationship with whether patients smoked so patients were less likely to clear if they smoked. Um, they were less likely to clear if they were overweight. If they had worse psoriasis, they were more likely to do well. And, but also that the cumulative dose didn't seem to be important. So if patients finished their treatment with a lower dose, they seemed to do better. So in other words, extending the course didn't seem to be helpful for patients. Um, in terms of our patients, we found that 34% of those patients were still in remission at six months, so that's not needing any treatment for their psoriasis at six months. And we also found the total clearance didn't seem to predict how long people stayed in remission for in terms of if they were 100% clear, whereas if you got 90% clear, you had a, a very good, good remission, about six months compared to four months if you didn't make that. What are the implications of your findings? How would you like to see physicians, again, particularly dermatologists, incorporate your research into their practices? So there's a few things which I think people can take home from this. First of all, that 100% clearance isn't as important as getting nearly clear or 90% clear. And that's important because often our patients are saying, well, can I just carry on because I've just got this tiny bit that hasn't gone and our research didn't support that as being important for long-term remission. It may also help us to select patients which will do well with phototherapy. So patients that are heavy smokers and are overweight may not be as, as good a candidates for phototherapy in terms of clearance. And indeed, that might uh, be a good thing to, to tell people to try and help them 
reduce weight or to stop smoking. But also it's important to remember that UVB is one of those few modalities that can cause 100% or can cause clearance, which is can last for sometimes months or years. And biologic drugs and other things like that can be very effective, incredibly effective, but often they don't have quite such a good remission. So when you stop them, the disease will come back again. So I think that it's really important to, to remember that because UVB is being forgotten now as the, the better drugs come along. But that may really help us in terms of thinking about mechanisms of clearance and so forth. So we need to think about what it is that switches off the psoriasis rather than causes it down the line. Dr. Weatherhead, thank you for joining us. Next, I was able to speak with Professor Javier Cortez from Barcelona about the results from the Destiny Breast 03 Phase 3 trial. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Cortez. Can you comment on the spectacular efficacy data from the Destiny Breast 03 trial you presented at ESMO? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Rachel. So, yeah, I agree. Uh, as you very well said, we presented great data from Destiny Breast 03, which is basically around my phase trial, which tried to compare TDXD, a new antibody drug conjugate, Trastromabderuxtican, compared with uh, TDM1, and it was presented at ESMO 2021. As you know, uh, we have made terrific improvements in the prognosis of HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. However, the great majority of our patients will die because of the disease. So uh, even though we have, as I said before, get improvements, this is still an unmet need. So if we look at the history of HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, we realized that the standard of care in the first-line setting is clearly the combination of trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and taxane, based on the Cleopatra trial with a median progression in the range of 18.7 months. Also, it's quite clear that the standard of care in the second line setting is TDM1 based on the phenomenal data in the Emilia clinical randomized phase 3 trial uh, with a median progression on 9.6 months. However, it is true that this trial was uh, published many, many years ago by Sunil Verma in uh, 2012. So great improvements have been achieved since that time. And uh, when we look at the treatment landscape and the more recent clinical trials and real-world evidence studies, we have seen that with TDM1, the median PFS now ranges between six to seven months at best. Indeed, in some randomized phase two trials, like in K2, the, the TDM1 control arm did have a 6.8 months median PFS. Very good treatments are also upcoming, and we have data from the Destiny Breast 01, a large phase 2 study with Tratusumab deruxtican with TDXD, looking at, uh, at this uh, drug in the third line or beyond. So in this heavily treated population, the overall response rate was in the range of 61%, median PFS in the range of 19.4 months, and also at ESMO, we updated the data of overall survival within the range of 30 uh, months, which I think is uh, superb for this heavily predicted population. So because of the different uh, characteristics between these two antibody drug conjugates, TDXD and TDM1, basically with a, a very interesting uh, a bystander effect, the tumor selective cleavable linker, the drug to antibody ratio, and, and the, different, the differences in payload, uh, a head-to-head randomized phase three trial was conducted 
called Destiny Breast 03. In brief, in patients with unresectable or metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, previously treated with taxanes on trastuzumab, patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to TDN1 or to TDXD. Key primary endpoint was a progression-free survival, key secondary endpoint was overall survival, and other secondary endpoints were overall response rate, duration of response, progression-free survival according to investigator, primary endpoint was according to the blinded and independent central review, and safety. We presented at ESMO the interim analysis for progression-free survival, and based on the efficacy boundary for superiority, the Independent Data Monitoring Committee recommended to unblind the study in July the 30th this year. A total of 524 patients were randomized and of interest regarding baseline characteristics, about 20% of patients did have history of brain metastasis and about 70% of patients did have visceral disease. 89% of patients did have HER2 3+, according to the central analysis that was mandatory to be enrolled in this study. Also of interest, 8 to 10% of patients did not receive prior treatment for metastatic disease. We should not forget that these patients received treatment in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, but the disease-free interval was very short, less than six months. So this was considered as one line of prior therapy. What about the median progression-free survival primary endpoint? It was 6.8 months with TDM1, it was not reached with TDXD. Has a ratio 0.28 and the p-value was 7.8 by 10 to minus 22. 12 months, PFS rate was 34% for TDM1 and 76% for TDXD. According to the investigator, the hazard ratio was 0.26. When you look at the PFS in all key subgroups, either hormone receptor positive or negative, prior pertuzumab or not, visceral or not visceral disease, prior lines of therapy, and brain metastasis, yes or no, all subgroups benefit identically. The key secondary endpoint, 12-month overall survival was 94% with TDXD, 86% with TDM1, has a ratio 0.56, p-value 0.007, but this did not cross the pre-specified boundary for superiority at this interim analysis. Lastly, overall response rate was observed in about 80% of patients treated with TDXD compared with 34% of patients treated with TDM1. That 80% objective response rate in previously treated patients is pretty impressive. No, you're right. I mean, it's not only the 80%, as you, as you pointed out, it's also the 16% of patients having complete response, you know, and which is even much more impressive, in my opinion, is that only three patients in the TDXD arm, 1.1%, did have progressive disease as best response, compared with 17.5% in the TDM1 arm. So why is it that TDXD is so much better than TDM1? Well, yeah, well, I cannot answer, of course, that question, but we can just discuss the differences between these both, both drugs. And as I said before, which I think is, is, is very important, at least there are in my opinion, seven to eight differences, but I would like to highlight four. The payload is completely different. It's topo one inhibitor. Uh, in, 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 with TDXD, it is an antimicrobial uh, agent with TDM1. Also, the high drug-to-antibody ratio. 
8 to 1 with TDXD, 3.5 to 1 with TDM1. Also, the tumor selectivity cleavable linker, we should remember that TDXD is, 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 is metabolized, is, is, is broken based on the, or thanks to the cathepsins B and L. And these are much more expressed in tumor cells compared than normal cells. And finally, the bystander anti-tumor effect. So, so once the payload is broken, the top one inhibitor can cross the membrane and can affect the neighboring cells, something that does not happen with TDM1. Obviously, we're all wondering what this does in first-line metastatic disease, but also what about early disease? Can we think about this as, say, post-neoadjuvant for residual disease? <laughs> no, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. There are two ongoing clinical trials which are, in my opinion, key. One of them is in the first-line serine metastatic. So it, basically, it is a Cleopatra-based regimen compared with TDXD, compared with TDXD plus pertuzumab. And the other one, as you pointed out, is in the adjuvant setting after non-PCR based on neoadjuvant approach. In, again, face-to-face against TDM1. Well, I don't know which uh, the results will be, but I expect that, of course, TDXD will be superior to TDM1 also in that, in that setting. The data you presented supports moving TDXD to the second line instead of the third line. Do you think we can give TDM1 to our patients after TDXD? That's, Rachel, a, love, a, a lovely question. Of course, the answer is we do not know, but this is something that had happened in the history of breast cancer in particular and cancer in general when you have a good drug and this drug move up. What about the other ones? They have to move after. So I think that we, of course, will need to uh, look at the activity of TDM1 in real-world evidence studies to see how it looks like. I think that I might expect some degree of activity because of the payload. It's completely different. But of course, I don't know if, they will, if we will have this 34-35% of responses that we observed in Emilia, very similar to, also to Theresa. So this is something that we have to see in the, the future months or years. At ESMO, there was also a highlighted trial called the TULIP trial with trastuzumab duocarmazine. Can you put that or those results into context with the Destiny Breast 03 data? Well, I think, that, again, it's an excellent question. What about TULIP? What about trastuzumab duocarmazine? Uh, the answer, of course, is, yeah, the answer, of course, is we don't know. We have to see what happens afterwards. But let me make the same comment uh, as before. So if we do not know the activity of TN1 after TDXD, we do not know the activity of trastuzumab duocarmazine after TDXD. So when you look at the TULIP data, the PFS was achieved, has a ratio 0.64. But two key aspects, in my opinion. The first one is that the overall response rate was identical. It was 30% with physician's choice. It was 28% with trastuzumab duocarmazine. So no improvement in overall response rate. And the second one is the, the toxicity. Almost 80% of patients, 78.1%, did have any grade of eye toxicity, being grade 3 or higher in 21.2% of patients. Also, uh, we should not forget that 2% of patients did have fatal cases, fatal events. So I think this is a, a tough drug that we, of course, have to learn how to manage it. So my, my answer is very clear. We do not know, but in my opinion, T1 is a better option to be explored compared with uh, 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 trastuzumab duocarmazine at this time after TDRZ. One thing that puzzled me was that although the interstitial lung disease numbers were actually quite low on this Destiny Breast 03 trial, lower than previous trials, there was a fairly high discontinuation rate. Could you talk to that, please? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, it is true that when we look at the discontinuations, it was in the range of 12 to 13% with TDXD, it was 5% with TDM1. So it's about 7 to 8 points higher. 
the great majority of this difference could be because of the ILD pneumonitis. By the way, the great majority of them being grade 1 or 2. Only two patients, 0.8%, did have grade 3 pneumonitis and no grade 4, grade 5. So I think that we have to know how to manage this grade 2 uh, pneumonitis ILD. But I, I agree, I think that we have to learn again how to use this drug more in the future. But nevertheless, even having this 13% of discontinuations, the impressive improvement in, in activity, in my opinion, makes sense to consider this drug as the next standard of care in the second line setting. Thank you so much for your comments. Thank you very much, Rachel. Happy to be with you today. Dr. Umbarin S. Nahal is a board-certified pediatrician who serves as a community representative for the HHS Faith and Community Partnership Center. She's been faculty for the MIT Critical Data Group and an MIT Sloan Fellow. She's a recognized thought leader and published on payment reform, quality-reducing disparities, human-centered health IT design, and ethical artificial intelligence. As Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Affairs of Community Healthcare Network, Dr. Nahal led a 14-site, multi-specialty, certified patient-centered medical home serving 85,000 New Yorkers with oversight of more than 700 staff and a $100 million operating budget. Dr. Nahal served as Associate Medical Director of MassHealth, a Medicaid program serving 1.6 million members and accounting for 40% of the state budget. Dr. Nahal is a former board member to the American Academy of Pediatrics, Massachusetts, and has published two ACGME-compliant curricula on family-centered care, communication, and trauma-informed care. Four times, Dr. Nahal has been named LinkedIn Top Voice for Healthcare and as Top Female Voice on International Women's Day. Dr. Nahal received her education at Aga Khan University Medical School in Pakistan and at the Harvard School of Public Health. She has served as faculty at Harvard Medical School, Boston University School of Medicine, and University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Nahal joins us today to discuss how to find the balance of hope and humanism in what she says is a system of perverse incentives. You have been a chief medical officer and vice president of medical affairs in New York City, which has been especially hard hit during the pandemic and has had some tragic cases of physician suicide. You've had credentialing and disciplinary oversight as a medical director in Massachusetts Medicaid and you were elected by your peers to the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics in Massachusetts. Given that it is Women in Medicine Month and was recently National Suicide Awareness Day, can you share, from your experience as a physician leader, what we need to do better to support doctors at the front line, especially in this pandemic? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, it's obviously a very serious topic. We know at baseline prior to the pandemic, around 400 physicians committed suicide a year, and about a third of physicians have some symptoms of burnout. So, I mean, this was a problem prior to the pandemic. We saw what's happened in the pandemic. There was insufficient PPE, that we have had staffing shortages. It's really just been crisis upon crisis. I would parse it out into a couple of things. One is that you know, why Why were we not prepared for this disaster? And I will say, as somebody who's also currently also in business school, learning about operations management, healthcare management, we have, I think as physicians, given up our leadership roles and outsourced a lot to business, some of which is done well, but there has to be that partnership between the clinical understanding and expertise and the business side of things. So there's there are just some things that are not going to be captured by an Excel solver equation for an optimization equation. 
which relate to compassion, which relate to humanism, which relate to care. And fact is that while all of us should be pro-quality, pro-safety, I'm a massive advocate and proponent for these. There's too much medical harm. I do believe we need to reduce error. That said, all of us went into this profession because we are interested in human beings. Some of us come at it more with the technical aspect. Some of us come at it more with the prevention aspect. We all come at it different ways depending on our specialty. However, we didn't go into Wall Street, right? And while engineers are awesome, we didn't become engineers. We have to preserve the humanism in medicine. And we have to do that both in terms of our experience of care, as well as how we structure the management and the business of healthcare. Business leaders know that if there is a ball that's about to drop, a nurse or a doctor is going to catch that ball because that ball is not just some random data point. That ball is a human life or, you know, it has impact on somebody's lifelong, perhaps like disability. And because we know the human impact of our work, we will not step away. We will run into, right? I mean, I was I worked in the emergency department on the, the day of the Boston Marathon bombing. What was famous, right? We have the motto, Boston strong. In New York, there's New York tough. But what Americans do when they come together on, you know, incidents like 9-11, Nurses and doctors are doing every single day. And that is going to exhaust you when other people are thinking about efficiency and thinking about the bottom line. And so I think what we really have to do is we need to align our operations and our KPIs to our supposed values, which is that we are human beings serving human beings. I think really the core of it is that we have to allow more humanism, including whether it's in our professionalism definitions. You know, in the pandemic, I was appalled that there were some people upset about a doctor literally smiling and saying, we know you shouldn't be smiling if there's a pandemic and people are dying. No, we, we should allow doctors and nurses to be human. When we allow ourselves to be human, we will reduce the ableism and the other isms in medicine. We will see our patients as human. And we need to run the entire industry as well as individual clinics with human beings in mind. There have been reports of women physicians leaving medicine early with added stresses during the pandemic. As a woman in medicine who has been a physician leader in the C-suite, what do you recommend for retaining women in medicine? Another good question. I would say that... We need to acknowledge that while there are a lot of these categories we put people into, so women, minorities, somebody with mental health issues, somebody with disability, there is a term that's used in you know, equity discussions. It's called intersectionality. So I think we actually need to be thinking about all vulnerable groups or all groups that have added barriers. And those barriers might be a variety of things. It might be that they don't have the mentorship. They don't have the budget. They don't have the resources. Maybe their training has been different. There could be a variety of things. Speaking from personal experience, I think early in your career, people are happy to 
support you. You might remind them of their niece or their daughter. But I think what happens is that when you get to mid-career and beyond, there's this competition, right? This is just the nature of, of career. And I, I, we have to be willing to have women be able to ask for things that they need, uh, talk about budget issues, and not get, there's a, there is evidence that there is a little bit of uh, social pushback when women step out of a gender role, especially in a profession that's focused on caring. So I think we need to get over some of the different ways in which we respond to people when they ask for things. I think we need to be thoughtful about barriers. And I think we honestly just need to have the budget to retain the underrepresented individuals in medicine. We hear a lot about perverse incentives in healthcare. You are currently in business school. Can you describe some of the perverse incentives you see in healthcare? Given that we live in a country that is pro-business, and while many, again, hospitals are nonprofit, the, a lot of the ways in which it's run is a business. So in business school, we talk about centering the customer. And one of the things that gets not talked about very much is that we call the patient the consumer, but the purchaser of care is actually frequently the employer who purchases insurance or the government program like Medicare or Medicaid that determines the benefits. So what happens is that hospitals and insurance companies or government are really the ones in the room making a lot of the decisions, and the patient is actually out of the room. Where you do see patients included ends up being in a way that doesn't result in the best outcomes. For instance, you see a lot of direct-to-patient advertising by pharmaceutical companies, and then you have the patient coming into the doctor asking for something, but then in reality, the decision maker is the insurance company. There's really just not alignment of who's being served, who's making the purchasing decisions, the pricing decisions. There's not transparency. While we talk a lot about our values and being mission-driven, I have seen some stuff where hospitals will not take certain types of Medicaid or certain types of insurance because of, understandably, it's not good for the bottom line and finances, but that excludes the most vulnerable patients. Insurance companies are increasingly doing narrow networks, and that disrupts longstanding relationships that patients have with their doctors. So there's just a whole bunch of different ways in which the system create fragmentation, the wrong kind of competition, and not alignment. What is the role of social media in healthcare and medical communication, including marketing, reputation, patient education, misinformation countering, and advocacy? I would say that the healthcare marketing industry is in the billions. And it is something that does need to be done. What ends up happening is that there are too many, I think, different camps that don't communicate with each other. As a pediatrician, we've had the hashtag tweetiatrician for a very long time. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has been training pediatricians how to do advocacy through social media for well over a decade. Other parts of medicine have come onto social media more recently who come from private practice and are trying to grow their patient populations, as well as now there's an increasing push towards countering disinformation. 
The upshot is that the most effective communication still happens one-on-one, face-to-face, through your trusted relationships. Arguing about data online is just a rabbit hole you do not want to go down. And I see far too many clinicians who get into that. And honestly, we just look like jerks. And that just reinforces the idea that doctors are egotistical jerks. And we really don't need to be adding to that perception because that's not, I mean, there are always going to be people out there who should improve the way they communicate. Reality is vast majority of doctors are not that. And so the folks who get onto social media and they get ping, 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 all the notifications, the algorithms are designed to get us addicted. So I would say approach social media for your networking, approach it with authenticity. The American Medical Association has some great information that they call personal branding that can put some people off because it sounds too businessy. But I actually would say opposite. Instead of outsource your communication to some business marketing person, take the time, learn it, get some feedback, Maybe here are some uncomfortable things about how you communicate and how it comes across to other people, but we need to be out there doing this. In the news, there was talk of disciplining physicians who spread mis- or disinformation. What are your thoughts on that? I read somewhere that it's about 12 social media influencers who are the source of most misinformation. As a pediatrician, we've been dealing with this with anti-vax for two decades. And the source of that misinformation was Andrew Wakefield, who has now been removed by the British medical authorities. He is no longer a credentialed physician. What did he do? He picked up and came to the United States. In fact, he has found more credibility with the anti-system, anti-science people by having his credentials removed because there's this whole perception of being persecuted, being silenced, People who are anti-science believe that they are activists and it makes them a martyr. And what that reminds people of is like throwing tea in the harbor of like being crucified, all sorts of examples that are very powerful, such that the minute you start taking away credentials, which I, I don't think that's a wrong thing to do per se, I just don't think it's going to be effective. So I would say that we really need to do the hard work of working within our communities to have tough conversations with people we actually know and work through relationships of trust. What are the scientific and medical communities doing well? What should they be doing better? And what should they stop doing in order to promote better collaboration and improve trust in science and physicians? Yeah, so I would actually pick up on what I was just saying is I think we use a lot of authoritarianism and a lot of peer group pressure in ways that is not effective. So for instance, it's actually very hard if there is a malpractice case to find a physician who will testify against another physician. And while there's a lot of competition between physicians, there's a professional culture of not kind of being a snitch, so to speak. What that leads to is something that's against safety culture which is we have to actually have a transparent, non-shaming approach to reporting so that we all acknowledge to err is human, we're all human, things will happen, and just sensibly plan for preventing error rather than 
being very mission driven to the point where you're unable to hear feedback. One thing I think about as a physician is that we are trained to be fairly pessimistic. So as a pediatrician, I look at a happy cooing baby. Most people see babies and are happy. I see babies and I'm thinking about risk. And that's how we're trained to think as clinicians, which is how we keep our patients safe. I feel like it's gotten to the point where we are unable to necessarily bring in that humanism that we need in medicine. And that goes back to the first question. We need to find that balance of hope and humanism in a system of perverse incentives in order to deliver better care, take better care of ourselves. And I, the system has to change for sure, but that has to come from a place of hope and belief that we are capable of changing it. And that has to come from us speaking up to business folks. They're not bad people, but they are not doctors and they need clinicians to tell them how to maintain humanism in our profession. Thank you for taking the time today to talk with us. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something new. Stay safe and stay healthy. Stay tuned for our next episode as we are joined by top thought leaders to discuss the latest groundbreaking research presented at this month's top annual medical meeting.